Ryan, are you there? Hello, Michael. Hello, Internet. Hello, world. Hello, worldwide Internet. Welcome to another edition of the Buck and Sack Show. I'm Michael Sachs in San Francisco. Ryan Buckley, you're in Portland, Oregon. Ryan, it's August 27th, 2019. It's our last show of August. It's our last show before the college football season really gets revved up here on Thursday and then on Saturday. And we've also got a game on Sunday and Monday. I know it kind of started, uh, you know, this past Saturday with our first ever, I think, that I first that I can remember, big-time matchup pre-Labor Day. But how are you feeling about this whole thing, my friend? Uh, I'm really excited. Really excited. I yeah. like the zero-week idea because it's kind of giving us just a taste or a precursor. And um, I'm really excited for this coming weekend. And there are enough good games that I'm, I'm really, excuse me, clear my throat. Um, Let me clear my good, throat. Uh-huh, uh-huh, yeah. Um, but no, there, there's, there are enough good games that now I'm starting to get fired up, and what made me fired up really was the zero week. And I, I know that there were a lot of complaints that the, the football between Miami and Florida was sloppy, that uh, Arizona and Hawaii left something to be desired, but I was just happy to have it back, and it just wet my whistle just enough to get me even that much more fired up for this week. So I don't know if you want to start getting into it just now, but uh, my, no, yeah, my good of the week it. is... Let's go. Just keep yeah. going. This is both of our good of the week, and that's college football is back. You're on a roll. Keep going. Yeah, well, save for the fact that uh, Desmond Howard uh, referenced an off-color Dave Chappelle skit and had to apologize for it on TV. It was a great first weekend. I think that the, uh, like I said, the quality of play between Miami and Florida wasn't anything to write home about. There was uh, some grumbling about the the teams just being sloppy, but what they produced for us was a two-point ball game that stayed right around the number uh, as far as the total was concerned yep. and and really was good football with some outstanding highlights. Some of the plays the running backs were making in that game were incredible, and it just felt good to have it back. It felt good to have a little bit of rivalry sprinkled in there. I know, I know that Florida and Miami aren't necessarily uh, true rivals, but the fact that they share a state and have both been national powers at uh, various times made there a little more juice in that game. And on top of it, that Hawaii-Arizona game, I knew that was going to be a dogfight. I probably should have bet Hawaii plus the 11, knowing what we know now. But uh, to see Arizona turn Hawaii over six times and still not find a way to get in the end zone, Khalil Tate was hit and miss. He almost came up with this incredible play at the end. A defensive lineman who actually flushed him out of the pocket before the last snap, who goes by the first name of Manly, tracked him down a a yard short of the goal line. And just a scintillating finish at the end of the very first night of college football and it just left me wanting more and that's that's why it's my good of the week it's the game weren't even particularly great but just the fact that it's back it gave me enough that i'm juiced for this week i got plenty of reasons to be as an oregon fan a big matchup against auburn yeah uh, but just in general to have the sport that we so love uh back and running at full speed come uh, really friday i mean friday night uh, even a little Pokes Beavers matchup, I'll be keep fixing my eye on. But uh, I'm just, I'm just fired up, and you can probably tell. I can tell, and I'm fired up too, man. I thought that this Week Zero game uh, between the Gators and the Hurricanes was just awesome. Uh, quite honestly, I didn't, I didn't look at Twitter at all during the game because I was trying to watch the Braves and Mets simultaneously, and also be a dad uh, and a and a husband. So tall order. 
It was a tall. It was a tall order, and according to my wife, I failed a little bit because she said I'm already. <laughs> it's too early to be this into college football, and that never. Yeah, I took a little bit. I took a little bit of gruff from from the misses after the game when I tried to get out of bath duties to watch the end there of the Gators <laughs> and the Canes. But it was well worth it because I thought it was a, a really good game. And and like I was saying, when I opened up Twitter the next morning, I was honestly you know, a little bit surprised to see uh, the general sporting public kind of shitting all over the game. I mean, sure, there were a lot of penalties. Miami had, I think, close to 200 yards in penalties. I think there was something, mm-hmm. I don't know the exact number, but there were a lot of turnovers. There were some questionable calls. I mean, the Gators killed themselves with turnovers all night, and that's really what kept the Canes in the game. But I thought just from a competitive standpoint, from an atmosphere sp- standpoint, from a spirit standpoint, and more than anything, just to having college football back standpoint, the night was a huge success in my eyes. I, I loved every minute of it. I was, you know, I woke up, I turned on college game day. I was, you know, literally like a kid on Christmas morning. And then it was honestly, it was tough just kind of finding stuff to do all day, waiting for that four o'clock West Coast kick. You know, I was watching a little bit of the pregame show, both on ESPN and on the SEC Network, tuning in to see Laura Rutledge and Tim Tebow and Marcus Spears. And uh, Paul Feinbaum, they do a great job on that show, on that SEC Nation show. I don't think a lot of people outside of the SEC watch that show much for obvious reasons, but that's a great crew that they have. Uh, But I digress. You know, I just thought the whole thing was good. You know, it was hot. It was the season opener. You had a, a new quarterback for Miami, a new coach for Miami, a lot of young players for Miami. But they played hard from start to finish. And, you know, I just thought it was interesting uh, how both teams sort of played to their stereotypes. You know, Miami was sort of brash. You know, they have the turnover chain. Now they un- unveil these new, like, I don't know, touchdown rings. You touchdown knuckles. Yeah, something, you know, these brass knuckles, which is so on brand for the Canes. You know, the Gators are there with Spurrier up in the stands and, and you know, kind of smirking when they're turning the ball over ridiculously late in the game. And, and you know, the Gators are their quarterback, Felipe Franks, is talking trash after, you know, finally scoring a touchdown in the second half. He's over there talking trash. You know, I just, again, thought it was both teams were very characteristic, but that's kind of what makes mm-hmm. it fun. You know, you had Dan that's, Mullen. That's what you expect. It's what you want. It's exactly, you know, it's like, Buy the ticket, take the ride, as as the great Hunter S. Thompson said. And that's exactly what I did, and I thought it was a lot of fun. And I really think that college football in general needs to take a serious look at making this week zero good Power 5 matchup an annual tradition, Ryan. I think it's a complete no-brainer. Totally agree. Like, why wouldn't they do this? The ratings, I think... Especially if you could make it a solid doubleheader, too. And I know that they were on different networks and they weren't back-to-back. But the fact that we had... Or I I guess they they kind of ran into one another. But the fact that you had a second uh, kind of a a night game almost backed up if you had a dud, if you weren't ready for the first one. But what you got was two very close football games. And and I think, you know, Arizona versus Hawaii wasn't even sexy. Not not in the way that Florida-Miami would be. But if you give... Two great games, great non-conference games a year to start the season. Who's not going to be interested in that? Nobody. And and the ratings showed it. I think it was ESPN's totally. highest rated regular season game in three seasons. Since you know, 2016, correct. Yeah. yeah and, and the other thing that they need to do on this is now that the gambling has become legal, I saw today, I think Iowa, uh, the 
great people in the state of Iowa today were able to place a, a legal sports wager for the first time. They got it together and got it up and running just in time for football season. Uh, but so they're now 12, the 12th state where sports gambling is now legal. Obviously, that number is going to grow. But the ESPN just needs to go whole hog on this. You know, get DraftKings or Bovada or, or whoever you want, the highest bidder, to sponsor this Week Zero game, and they can run promotions off of it. You know, first-time uh, first users get a free bet on this game or, or whatever you want to do. I mean, the possibilities are endless. But go whole, whole hog, get a gambling sponsor on it, and make this thing an annual tradition. And, you know, this coming Saturday, we've got some not-so-great uh, neutral field matchups. You mentioned the Ducks and Auburn is top of the list. Alabama-Duke isn't all that scintillating. But they've been having a lot of attendance problems the last few years where fans don't want to go to these neutral site games anymore, whether it be in Dallas or Atlanta. Those are the two traditional spots. But, we, you know, there's one in Charlotte every year. Uh, th this game uh, on Saturday that we've been talking about was in Jacksonville. So fans aren't that into it, but I think if you just make it this one neutral site game on week zero and do away with most, if not all, of the rest of them, I think that's a, an easy fix. It's a no-brainer, and this is something they've got to do. They don't have anything on schedule for next season. They need to change that now. I mean, they need to... Agreed. Uh, I think a lot of teams would line up for this. I mean, you can start with having... Especially if it means you get an extra bye week in the season, essentially. Yeah, and, and it makes sense for the schools to do it. There's no real sacrifice. They get to start practice a little bit earlier, which is good for them. You mentioned the bye week, but there's no real... Uh, penalty to be paid for no. playing in this game. It's all You're just positive. starting a little earlier, but if you start your camp earlier, what's the problem? It, it, exactly. I just think it's a win for everybody involved. I really enjoy the game. And, you know, we talk about this all the time on this podcast, this sort of negative social media reaction to things that really aren't that negative. I think the, the public reaction to the sloppiness of the game, it's like, what the hell else were you going to do that was any better? <laughs> you clearly liked football. You're well, watching Ian, the you game. Got so just enjoy it for what it is. It was a great game. It went down to the last play of the game. I mean, what you more do you want? You got great Seriously. highlights. You got, you got, you got great highlights you got high leverage situations you got you got lead changes it's it's everything you should want in a football game i guess you can claim that it wasn't clean enough but that's like people cl like complaining the worst other teams by too many points like do you want it to be good or not, not? <laughs> do you want a competitive you need to be game pleased or not with what do the product was they put out there because it was pretty good yeah I, it's crazy would it have been better if they weren't penalized as much and they had and they'd only and it had been a 30-point blowout one side or the other? No, of course not. Nah, it was it was like Christmas morning for me. It really was. And then on top of all, ev everything that we just mentioned, you mentioned it earlier, it, it was, uh, from a betting perspective, both the total and the point spread were in play until the very last snap of the game. You can't ask for anything more than that. It was great. I loved it. So that's my take on Week Zero. Let's talk a little bit. You you want to talk about the season now, or you want to save it for when we go in the book? What what should, what should uh, we do? Let's let's wait before we go in the well. We no, can, I would I, say I we agree. Can, let's move do... on. Let's hold it. Okay, let's, let's we're do it. Talk about uh, this coming weekend, which is really a four day affair: Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Mm -hmm. Five day affair. Monday, you've got the Irish playing the now Petrino-less Louisville Cardinals on Monday, which is really a pretty crappy game, but whatever. 
Uh, let's go to, we both have the same bad of the week. We have same good of the week, same bad of the week. And it says Andrew Luck Saga. Get us going on this, please. Yeah, for me, it's, I, I feel like a little bit like the old man on the porch here where it's like I'm just, you know, old man yelling at cloud or whatever because I'm not sure there's any one person or entity to be mad at. It's kind of just the whole situation felt like a consequence of the, the types of times we live in from a media and reporting perspective. I just really didn't like, and I, I get that it's a man's game and it's cutthroat and, and everyone has a job to do, but I hated the way that the Andrew Luck retirement unfolded. And it started, at least from the, from the public eye, with an Adam Schefter tweet. Now, I, I think Adam is doing his job. He's has the status he does for a reason because he breaks scoops before other people. And if you have a scoop like that, it's his job to report something like that. But the the domino effect it had and then the kind of avalanche that it, it ended up heaping on Andrew Luck just felt shitty is, is, is the best way that I can say it. And, and for those who didn't see it, what essentially happened was Andrew Luck had made plans to address the team that he was retire after their Saturday night preseason game. And then he was going to hold a press conference the following Sunday for the media uh, and everybody else. And in which he talked about that retirement, but Adam Schefter scooped everybody and put this tweet out in the middle of the third quarter of their preseason game while he is in, uh, you know, team issued street clothes gear on the sidelines. And basically the entire stadium starts to get wind of this and it, it starts spreading like wildfire that he's retiring. And what it ends up with is Andrew Luck getting booed off the field. The last time he ever leaves Lucas oil stadium, um, because people found out from Adam Schefter and not him that he was retiring. And I just, for a guy that's gone through what he's been through, making what I think is a pretty brave decision to not continue down a path that doesn't feel right for you anymore. Um, and, and, you know, maybe some will say that's hippy-dippy or like Doug Gottlieb will say that's too millennial or something like that. But Andrew Luck has earned the right to do whatever he wants. He's He's been a stand-up guy his entire career a smart guy. He has his brain intact, his body not so much, and he wants to get out. And that should be fine. But the type of people that are sticking around for the fourth quarter of a third week preseason game uh, are, are the kind of people the fans that are going to boo, that are going to be disappointed that that news matters to. And I, I just wish that Andrew and it, it's not I guess I could just sit here and I'd say I wish it was different, and but I don't because I don't really know what the fix is. I, I but I, what I wish is that it was able to be handled on Luck's own terms, and I think the only way that that maybe could have happened is if there was a greater circle of people who knew that that retirement was coming. But I didn't face didn't like in the face of making this decision. Um, he had to essentially get piled on because it got announced in the way that he didn't plan for, and I, I don't know. Where where we go about fixing it, I don't know that we do. But I do remember many years ago, this had to be almost 10 years ago now, Kevin Love was with the Timberwolves, and he tweeted out who they were drafting before the commissioner announced. And that was kind of the moment for me with Twitter, like, wow, this could really change the way that we receive news. And, and obviously it has become how we see it now with every draft and everything else. But something like this, you just wish that Andrew Luck had the opportunity to be uh, handle it as a human before he had to hear the uh, the kind of unfortunate human side of uh, people reacting to that. 
Yeah, there's a lot to unpack here. I, I generally agree with everything you say. I come at it from a slightly different angle. I haven't given much thought to the whole way that it unfolded uh, with Schefter's tweet and then the consequent, uh, the, the consequent, the booing off the field. Obviously, uh, for me, when I saw the the video of Luck walking off the field and getting booed, I honestly felt a little bit sick to my stomach. Um, and you know, this news, yeah. this, this news broke. Uh, during the the Miami Florida game, and the first way I mm-hmm. found out about it was just on you know they put like a red breaking news bottom line up during that Miami game, and the first reaction I had was one of surprise, and then you know I th- immediately thought about it for you know like a quarter of a second, and my reaction after that was this makes a lot of sense you know uh, knowing his you know having not really heard what the reasons were what was going on. My mind immediately went to this list of injuries that Luck has battled over the past. You know, he's been in the NFL. This would be his seventh season. Uh, The past four seasons, he's been uh, battling just a a litany of injuries. I've got the list here. You know, in his career, he's he's battled torn cartilage in his ribs, a partially torn abdomen, a lacerated kidney that led to him peeing blood, uh, he's mm-hmm. had at least one reported concussion. Who knows if he's had more? He had a torn labrum in his throwing shoulder that caused him to miss almost an entire season, and now he's dealing with something you know what they're calling a mysterious calf slash ankle issue. So it's like, yeah, like a bone ossification. Yeah, or no some one really seems thing. to know. And now that he's retired, people aren't going to even really care, which is kind right. of par for the course. But. You know, my mind immediately said, you know, I knew he had been battling a lot of injuries. I figured he was just, t- you know, he's made a lot of money. Uh, obviously, he's leaving a lot of money on the table, which is something that people seem to want to focus on. But for me, I just go to kind of where I go to with almost everything uh, in the world these days, which is if you're not causing physical or mental harm to anyone, you can basically do whatever the hell you want. And, and that's kind of where mm-hmm. I am with this. You know, uh, I do think that there's an argument to be... I feel like the only people that can, like, legitimately be upset about this are people who are in the Colts organization. The owner, right. the, the GM, the coach, and the players. Because he has kind of screwed them over a little bit. He's left them hanging. The timing of this, you know, two weeks before the season started isn't good. You know, if he had done this before the draft, they could certainly have drafted in a certain way to compensate for this. And now, you know, Jim Irsay, the owner, has decided to let him keep all of his signing bonus, which by rule I don't think he really had to do. So it's a very no, nice No, he ge- could have he could have recouped he could the Colts could have demanded that he pay back twenty four point eight million dollars. Right. And it would have been within their right to do it. Absolutely. Uh, Ursay would have taken a public bashing if he had, which is probably why he didn't. But it leaves him in a bad spot football-wise. You know, it just does. I mean, that, you know, I think that that's part of the story that needs to be mentioned. Now, as far as the negativity, to me there's been sort of three areas of negativity, a sort of backlash towards Andrew Luck. There's the booing that we mentioned. You mentioned Doug Gottlieb's tweet. And then uh, Dan Dockett Dan tweeted, yeah. tweeted sort of that, you know, an anti-luck decision tweet as well. But outside of those three voices, I think that the the chorus has been almost entirely of the camp of kind of good for Andrew Luck. I'm happy. You know, I hope that he finds peace. And that's basically 
where I am, but I do think it's interesting how uh, the sentiment towards all of this has really changed. I mean, I go back to the Niners, and you need to help me with the player. I forgot to look him up. Who was the linebacker out of Wisconsin who retired with the Niners after only playing one season? Yeah, Chris Borland. Chris Borland. Yeah, so that was probably six years ago uh, when he did that. Mm-hmm. He, he retired after one season, and he had a pretty good rookie season. Uh, and he retired for, for health concerns and, and injury issues. And, and the chorus from the general public was not like it is now, six years ago. I mean, I think a lot of people supported him, but a lot of people were quite utterly shocked the person would turn down the money and the fame and the fortune that comes along with playing in the NFL. So now, I just think it's interesting how, uh, you know, the more we sort of find out about the CTE and the more guys that, you know, just this past week we've seen a former fullback from Alabama. He had, a, I think, a seven-year career with the Ravens and Chargers. LaRon McClain Mm -hmm. has been tweeting about how he's in a really dark place mentally and he needs help from the NFL. Uh, Just today, Rob Gronkowski did a a press conference where he's, and I know we're going to talk about this later, but he's basically sort of endorsing CBD that's been found to sort of mitigate some of the factors of not only injury but brain trauma as well. He's all for it, but he talked about how he was in a dark place the last few years mentally uh, while playing for the Patriots. So we're seeing this happen more and more, and this is all causing basically people to sort of understand when a star forsakes, or it doesn't even have to be a star, just when a football player forsakes Mm -hmm. fame and fortune in the NFL to basically get the hell out and try to live uh, a happy and healthy rest of their life, whatever they have left. So I thought I was just interested in sort of the, the general public sentiment is now on the so, almost solely on the side of the player, save for those Colts fans and Doug Gottlieb yeah. and Dan Dockage. Now, I know that there's some people out there on, on social media who think that he's, you know, a wimp or a baby or, or whatever, or, you know, he's never really had to work a day in his life, so how does he know what hard is? I know those sentiments are out there, but honestly, I haven't seen them much, if at all, in my Twitter feed or, or, or much at all. It just seems, you know, I, I don't know. I'm going on and on here, but I was a little bit surprised how everybody seemed to come to to rush to Luck's defense, and that's where I am as well, generally, but, you know, I I just think that that part is probably the most interesting to me. Yeah, no, I I agree. I I would also contend that despite uh, a couple voices that got a lot of attention about Nay saying the decision the support was overwhelmingly positive, and I think that's a good thing to, to see, especially when it comes to um, both physical and mental health and safety, that people are not like, why won't you get out there and be my gladiator anymore? But they're like, I can understand why that guy would want to do that. I think that's a, that's a positive direction for us to be moving. I agree, but I do think that there's another part of this, and that is basically something we've talked about a lot on this podcast, and it's sort of the future of football. And you mm-hmm. know, I, I think that you're going to see you're already seeing it. You're seeing more and more guys retire early. And I'm not sure that, you know, just as a football fan, it's not good for the game. And it's not good for the game for people uh, to be so sort of, I don't know, injury shy. And, and 
I just don't think it's good from a fan perspective for players to be retiring and cutting their short their careers short left and right. And I do think you're going to see more of that. Um, and I do think that you know we're seeing it all across the country. Youth participation in the sport is falling off drastically. Um, and and I don't think that that's good for football. But I do think that that's good for football players. So I'm not really sure. Uh, you know. I, I see where this is heading, and it's not heading to a great place for somebody who loves the sport as much as I do. But by the same token, I'm all for players being, you know, pro health, pro longevity, uh, pro, you know, getting out while they can, so to speak. So I'm, I'm really torn, kind of, in my overall feelings and sentiments. And I think that most football fans sort of fall in line with with those feelings. Do you agree at this point? Yeah, because I think that most people are like us and that we love the game, but we want to see the people who participate in it be okay. Yeah. And I think it's, prob- it's probably always been that way, but the issue is that some of the players have faced before haven't been magnified the way they are now. And so yeah. what we need is for technology to improve, which it is, for safety rules to improve, which they are, and then for people to try to do the, the best they can by these people who choose – to go and do this. And I don't know that that's happening yet. And certainly there will be a generation that sees far less participa- participation in football. But as long as there is a public appetite and there's an appetite on the television networks and in the sports books for football, there will always be enough money to lure the most talented athletes in the world to go play it. So I, I, I know that the overall pool of people who funnel into it, that may dwindle, but I, I, don't yet believe that the sport as we know it is totally at a risk, but I, I do think that it is tough to care about the welfare of the game and the players simultaneously, and I think that's what the league is finding out right now. Yeah, we agree. Um, okay, so that was our bad of the week. Uh, what's your interesting? My interesting of the week actually is a, is could be loosely related to this, and it is the go back to player welfare and treatment and uh, that was today i saw that rob gronkowski was out pitching a cbd company and it wasn't so much that i found that um or him being part of that particularly groundbreaking but i do think that he is an identifiable relatable uh and and really obviously well-known household name um probably putting a more relatable face on something that a lot of people don't know a ton about. And I personally can't claim to know a ton about CBD, but I I can say from the people who I know who I've spoken to, including a guy that I work with who used to play in the NFL and what Rob Gronkowski was saying today, that these people who have incurred a lot of pain over the years are experiencing a lot of success with CBD and the, and really just the fruits of cannabis in general. And it's not just Gronk, it's, it's other former pros. Um, It's guys in other sports, it's guys in hockey too, but it's the guys that take some of these physical beatings. And I I specifically saw just in the last week that uh, former enforcer, so to speak, Darren McCarty uh, credited marijuana for helping save his life, that he was uh, going to a place uh, with both depression and opiates that were, that was dangerous and uh, helped get him back on a a track that was more manageable. And then Daniel Carcillo, another guy who's an enforcer and more recently retired, um, he has gone into the CBD business and it has changed the way he's been able to um, deal with some of the physical pain that he's had over the course of his career. Rob Gronkowski said he's felt 
the best he's felt since he was playing in the NFL at any point, that his body has never been better and that uh, mentally he, he couldn't go back to the space where he had to kind of keep fighting that. And I, I think that what we're going to see is more of a push for welfare uh, in this regard, especially trying to get away from opiates that do so much damage to some of these guys that we've seen in the past. And I think that there for a while and maybe to some parts of the country and some of these leagues still is quite the stigma regarding anything that uh, dons the appearance of a, a marijuana leaf yep. or, 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 see, or, or could come uh, even in contact with it or, or be from the same thing. But once the if we're doing what's right by these players and by these people who need the help, this may be it. And I think that Gronk's role in this is he, and one of the things he said is, and it's not just about hawking a company that worked for him, but it was all, it's also about getting the conversation to the forefront with the leagues to make this okay as a treatment method and not have it be something that is, uh, that will give you a failed drug test or that will give you any sort of a negative stigma. And it's, it's a, a difficult thing right now still because uh, marijuana isn't federally uh, isn't federally regulated, but I believe CBD is if it's under a certain threshold. So there, there's some legal complications to it, but that's not really what's interesting about it to me. What's interesting is that I think that we have a little bit of a movement afoot here, and I think we're about to see um, a, a new kind of, I don't want to say a door to healing open, but I, I think what we're finding is this is an avenue that a lot of mainstream people will find uh, helpful for them, and, and it could change the way athletes are able to recover, rehab, and take care of themselves that will allow them to play these games longer. Yeah, all very well said. I think this is a very interesting topic, and it's one that's been bubbling up for a while. Um, you know, for me, the, the the real interesting part of this is is what you just hit on. It's the fact that uh, ma marijuana use is still illegal in all the major sports. You know, guys are still uh, mm -hmm. being tested for it and then getting suspended for it. Um, and that, to me, is a real problem. Um, and when you talk about the legal parts of it, I, I guess that's where it, where it really stems from. But I think more than anything, the leagues are hiding behind these laws uh, because I, I think the real reason is that some of the more conservative big name corporate sponsors are wary of attaching their brand to a league that sort of encourages the their players to use marijuana and i think that's really where the rubber hits the road here it's a financial thing more than it is a legal issue because in a lot of these states that these players are both playing and living Marijuana is fully legal. It's legal in the state that I live in. It's legal in the state you live in. It's legal in Nevada where there's about to be an NFL team. It's legal medicinally in D.C., in Boston, in New York, and a lot of other places. So, I mean, certainly there's still places where it's illegal where these players live and play. But for me, if I was one of these players and I got suspended for marijuana use, I, th I feel like some of these guys should have a real lawsuit on their hands because who's to say that you know you're living in California where anybody over the age of 21 can walk into any one of these uh, marijuana stores dispensaries or whatever they're called and buy it and either smoke it or eat it you know in edible form how is that you know against the rules particularly when in you know, all the science, all the research shows that these are not performance-enhancing drugs. If anything, 
you know, they're, they're performance enhancing from the standpoint of getting a little bit healthier, but it's not an uneven playing field to, to smoke a joint and then, you know, on a Wednesday and go out and play right. in a football game on a Sunday. It's not even in your system. And if it is in your system, you know, I don't think that that's a great thing for a football player to do anyway. So it's not a competitive right. balance situation here like, like steroids are. So I don't really understand why they're still testing for it. I think it's a very slippery slope from a legal perspective. It's really a sponsor thing. And that sort of, you know, uh, in some ways here, I think you're seeing a little bit of a player's uh, union versus the ownership uh, uh, argument here because I think the majority of the owners in these leagues are sort of older, uh, more conservative, and the players are obviously younger and a little bit more progressive and are willing, you know, are growing up in an, in an era where the, the use of marijuana is far more uh, prevalent than it ever has been in our country or really any other country. So I think that that's the real debate here, and I think that it, you know we go back to these concussions. If we can get some good hard research that says you know CBD or marijuana use is scientifically much better for you uh, in treating these injuries than opioids, or uh, you know if they're depressed or using antidepressants. If if the research is so overwhelming that this is just better. For the players, I think that the the these leagues are just absolutely crazy. If if from nothing else, from a public perception standpoint, like we were talking about with Andrew Luck, they're crazy not to just stop testing for marijuana. And I think that when these next collective bargaining agreements are negotiated, and MLB is going to be first up, but NFL's right behind them, it's going to be real interesting to see if the league ownership group sort of decide to stop testing for marijuana and stop suspending their players for using it. And, and that's, I think, the, the real most interesting part of this whole thing. Yeah, I mean, I think that we are, are just kind of at the tip of the iceberg about yeah. a lot of issues that are going to get unpacked about this. But like you said, I'm, in, I'm, I'm interested to see which direction it goes, how the leagues react to it. I heard something interesting in response to Gronk's involvement today in uh, in the event that he was involved in that basically predicted that the NBA will be the first to do it, the N- uh, the NFL will make the most money off of it, and the MLB will be the last to adopt it, and that sounds about right. I totally <laughs> agree with that. <laughs> I didn't see that he had said that. Also, interestingly, today I saw... Uh, oh, no, least... I don't think he said that. I just I, I saw someone on Twitter had said it, and I, I thought oh, that was astute. Gotcha. That would be a pretty smart yeah. thing for Gronk to say. Uh, no, he, I... he did not say it. Gotcha. But that's, you know, someone in response to him okay. being there and involved in that. Yeah. Gotcha. You know, I saw a recently retired NFL player Chris Long came out today uh, and, and on a TV show, some show, I don't know which one it mm-hmm. was, and talked about how he smokes marijuana too and that he did throughout his playing career – and somehow avoided, you know, being suspended for it. So I think that you're just seeing more and more guys come out in public and say that they, that they, you know, not only like to use CBD, but they also like to use cannabis. And, you know, as far as I'm concerned, you don't have to keep qualifying with it. You know, it's easy to, you know, easier for to get over injuries or this, that, and the other. If you just like to do it, then go ahead and do it, particularly if you're living in a state where it's totally legal. So I, I just think that mm-hmm. the stigma needs to be removed here. And we're getting there, obviously. We're getting there 
it, it slowly. But I think a big step for just a society's perception would be one of these leagues needs to just basically say, come out and say, our players can use it as much as they want. We're not testing for it at all anymore. And that, to me, that would be a big move when and if that happens. And, and it'll happen. It's just a matter of time. Um, Agreed. Yeah. So good, interesting of the week. Uh, my interesting of the week, I'm going to stay on the gridiron but shift gears completely. Uh, I've been enjoying Hard Knocks. I watched the third episode just last night. The fourth episode is on HBO tonight. Um, mm-hmm. You and I are on record as both being big fans of the show. I think yeah. I've seen every episode that they've ever had of this show. I think we're in like the 10th or 11th season now. I'm not really sure. But I yeah, there's been a bunch. I think this this season has been good, not great. I, I think it's been one of the weakest seasons just from an mm-hmm. overall sort of access standpoint and i'm not at all surprised by that you know you and i covered the raiders for quite a few years the raiders are are notoriously uh run sort of a tight ship they're very secretive as are all nfl teams really um and more so all the time but the raiders have to be among among the top of that list uh they're very secretive They don't really like their players out front and center doing a bunch of stuff in public. So it doesn't really surprise me that you haven't seen some of of the the behind-the-scenes stuff that you're accustomed to seeing on Hard Knocks. I mean, normally you see the head coach and the GM sitting in the office, kind of going over the roster, kind of shooting the bull a little bit, talking about players or whatever. You really haven't seen much, if at all, any of that between Gruden and Mike Mayock in this one. The whole thing's basically been the John Gruden and then the Antonio Brown show. And really, if it wasn't for this whole Antonio Brown saga, the show wouldn't really even have that, and it would be even more boring than it is. But it's basically they've made Gruden the star of the show, which is fine, but the team doesn't have a lot of interesting veterans. You know, they got rid of Khalil Mack and Amari Cooper last season. They haven't replaced him with many stars, and even their rookies aren't really that big-name rookie. You know, they took the safety Abram out of Mississippi State. He's been a focal point, and as is Hunter Renfro, the rookie out of Clemson. But they haven't shown Josh Jacobs, their other first-round pick out of Alabama, really at all. Um, you know, th- there's an interesting storyline with this undrafted rookie receiver who grew up in Alameda, who went to UC Davis. I think that that's probably the most interesting storyline I've seen so far. But I've, I've enjoyed it overall. Um, you know, I think Derek Carr's come off not great, um, <laughs> to say the least. That's just kind of how he is, though, isn't it? And I'll weigh in on all your thoughts in a moment. But yeah, that, I feel no, no, like just pick it up. I'm Derek, Derek Carr is... Go ahead. Yeah, I mean, Derek Carr has always, to me, just felt kind of like this um, manufactured friend or something like that. Yeah. I, I don't know how to. Um, he's he's the guy. He's like straight out of Central Casting, kind of. He's just he's like a generic white guy who wants to be just hip enough uh, to kind of get along with all the guys, and he is super, I think, genuine and kind of on the straight and narrow. Yes. But he doesn't want that to prevent him from kind of having that chemistry in those relationships. So he he tries to be cool in the face of him being on the straight and narrow, and it, it kind of doesn't work for him. But you know he's trying, and uh, yeah. I just well, I don't so. know that he he is a guy that that seems like he um, you know inspires a lot or is uh, 
I, I don't think he's a poor leader. I think his heart is in the right place. He just doesn't have that kind of it factor for me. Um, I do wish they were sp- spending a little bit more time maybe on Cleveland Farrell, who they uh, who draft they drafted very high, and they they've only really spent that one horseback ride with him and Jonathan Abram. Right on um, the the part that I think is really the most challenging here for them, and as at least from a production standpoint, is I don't know that there's any good or best way for them to handle most of this Antonio Brown stuff that's going on because it's a total circus. He's closed off about it. The Raiders don't want to talk about it, but the only thing the public wants to talk about. And for the most part, we know all the details about it, and we're going to get more from Twitter, from the pro football talks, from the Adam Schefters, from the Ian Rappaports, from the Mike Silvers, than we are from the Hard Knocks show. So the show is almost like forced to put a big spotlight on it, but I don't think the show can get anything more out of it than we have to begin with. So I, I think they're forced to chew up this time focusing on it. I do think that Antonio Brown comes off looking like a friggin' psycho. I, I think that uh, yes. just like when he tried to essentially impart his professionalism on John Gruden saying like, oh yeah, like I know the playbook, like I know what I'm doing. I'm like, well, if you were that professional, you wouldn't have gotten your feet burned or frozen, frostbitten in a crunch or in France. But here we are. And then he's, He's sitting there and he's uh, like, you know, everybody wants these questions. Everyone's trying to like hold him down. And that he's, in his words, quote, the enemy of the fucking state. And I'm like, what are you talking about, dude? People just expect you to be a $30 million a year receiver because that's what you are. So I I think that we found out that he's a little batshit crazy maybe. And uh, I don't know how this is going to turn out. I don't see it turning out well. I saw somebody put it over under it seasons with the Raiders at a year and a half, which what would you take there for Antonio under. Brown? Way under. Yeah. 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 Would you, would you take, would you still take under one full season? I think he's going to give it a full go. I think he's going to be there on week one. And, and you know, I think he's going to be out there in whatever helmet they allow him to play in. Um, but I just, I don't know, man. I just, I'm not, and you and I talked about this a lot last season. I'm not, on the John Gruden train. I just don't think that he no, neither is going to get them to the quote-unquote promised land. And when I say promised land, no, I no. mean nine wins in a season. Like, I just don't think he's going to get it done. Uh, and then on top of that, you know, I think it, it really hit me watching this show. They hired not one, but two guys at, basically off of the television set to run their football team. I mean, Mike Mayock was mm-hmm. a big part of the NFL network. He's never been a GM uh, on any level. You know, so what the hell's he know about running an NFL team? I mean, he's fine. <laughs> he's likable. <laughs> he knows a lot about football. Yeah. But but Mark Davis to me is really at the center of this whole thing. And I wish that they would show him a little bit more because apparently, you know, I was listening to a a podcast with Chris Mortensen. Uh he was on Ryan Rosillo's podcast. And Mort was talking about something that I had not heard before. So you go back to the Khalil Mack saga this time last year. And apparently, you know, we've, we've all heard, obviously, Mark Davis inherited this team from his dad. And you hear the stories about how Mark Davis is by far the, the, the least wealthy of all the NFL owners. Yeah. And, you know, we don't know how much of that's true or not. But pretty much everybody says that. You know, he's never really had any sort of business or industry in his life besides being a part of the Raiders. So 
uh, you know, Khalil Mack wanted what, like a hundred million dollars or whatever it was. And apparently, Chris Mortensen said that what NFL owners have to do is like if you're going to sign a guy to eighty million dollars guaranteed, even if it's spread out, you have to be able to put eighty million dollars in cash into escrow as if you were buying a house, so that a player doesn't get screwed out of the money. You know, maybe you get sued and you go bankrupt as the owner, and then the player's out of luck. So. So that's sort of like an NFL rule to protect to protect the player. And apparently, Mark Davis didn't have the hundred million dollars in cash to put into escrow for Khalil Mack. So that was what really was behind this whole trading of Khalil Mack, which I had never heard before. I, I don't know if you had heard that, but that's how Chris Mortensen explained it. But what I find interesting on that is. Okay, fine. So he's cash poor. He doesn't have the hundred million dollars up front to put in escrow to pay Cleo Mack. But he signed John. Gruden. Okay, but then you have no business signing. Der- well, John Gruden and Derek Carr to an eighty million dollar deal. Yeah, he signed John Gruden to a ten year hundred million dollar deal. So I don't know if right. If- and guess what? I'd rather have I'd rather have Cleo Mack than either or both. As would I. As would almost anybody. And so that that's the mm-hmm. part that I really don't understand here. And and so for me, you know, when, when you talk about the big picture of the Raiders and how poorly run they are and how they couldn't get anything done in Oakland to keep the team in Oakland and now they're going to Vegas on a sweetheart deal and Mark Davis is, you know, apparently doesn't have that much money and all that. So sell the fucking team, you know? So that's what you do. You yeah. can get probably at least $2 billion dollars for the team, if if he put the Raiders on the market now oh, or yeah. before, suitors would be lining up. And I know for a fact that there were a bunch of offers out there to him to, if not buy the team, to at least you know, in part, help build the stadium and in Oakland. And he mm-hmm. didn't want to do that. So I don't have really any sympathy for Mark Davis. He could sell this team and walk away with billions of dollars any day now that he wants to do it. But instead, he wants to hold on to it, and and he's just not a good owner. He makes bad decisions all the time. They haven't been worth a damn really since the snow game, where where you know they lost to Tom Brady in the Tuck Rule. The Patriots they haven't been worth a damn since then, and that was you know coming up now on twenty freaking years ago. So I don't want to hear anything more about it. To me, th- this whole show sort of just reveals the weirdness, and you don't really it doesn't really hit you in the face. I think that HBO does a good job of sort of, you know, polishing the turd, so to speak, that is the Raiders. And I think that the Raiders are really on top of them and really restrictive as to what they can show. And again, I think there's a reason that you don't see Gruden and Mayock interacting that much. There's a reason you don't see Mark Davis very much. There's a reason you don't see much off-the-field stuff very much in the locker room or what have you. And that's because the Raiders and Mark Davis in particular, and the people around him are very afraid of sort of the public finding out what's really going on behind the scenes. But in not showing that, I think it's very revealing as to what a dysfunctional and sort of weird organization it is. And I think that stems from, you know, Al Davis trying to run the team literally until his dying day, and then his son, who, let's just face it, it seems fairly incompetent as an NFL owner. Yeah. And I just think that that's all sort of between the lines of what you see on the TV each Tuesday night. Yeah. I mean, we, we once again are in total agreement. I think that there is, or there are 
a myriad of issues facing that organization that I mean, I don't know how else to describe it other than it just it seems like pure dysfunction. And every every time there's an obstacle to trip over, they find a way to trip over it. And uh, they seem to get in their own way a lot. They seem to not be able to get out of, get out of their own way a lot. And I just it I don't know that there's any one person that you can point to. I mean, I guess it all starts and ends with Mark Davis, but it does. also the the people that he's surrounded himself with that then go on down the line. It just doesn't seem like there should be a lot of cause for hope there, and I don't know that there is. Yeah, and I just want to say this. I, you know, I at, at the end of the day, I really do feel bad for their fans because I think they have a hell of a good fan base, and they've got one of the best brands mm-hmm. in all of sports. And I just think it's sad that they're, they are moving to Vegas. I really do. Like, I think it's going to be okay in Vegas. I really just don't see it working out super well for them from a football perspective, but primarily I don't see it working out as long as Mark Davis is running the ship. And I, and I feel bad for their fans. They have great fans. They've stood with them through thick and thin. It's been mostly thin for the last 30 years. So, you know, I feel, mm-hmm. I really do. I really do feel bad for their fan base. And I'm going to try to get out there for a game here in their final season at the Coliseum. You know, great tailgating scene. Uh, so I'm going to try to do that and, and just sort of, really have a good time with their fans because they're a special bunch and I think that they're a really great fan base overall. So that's my interesting of the week is Raider Hard Knocks. It's time to go back into the sports book, Ryan. It's been a long layoff. I don't think we've gone into uh, into the book now since the Super Bowl and uh, I'm excited to get in. It has been some time. I've got about, you know, I've got a little, little cash here in my pocket ready to spread it around the board. Uh, give me a few games uh, that you're generally looking forward to just from a, a fan perspective and from a betting perspective this weekend, this Labor Day, this glorious Labor Day weekend. <laughs> yeah, from a, uh, from a fan perspective, there are a few games that actually have uh, conference implications for the Pac-12 that I think are all important and that, and when I say important, I mean important for the conference and they haven't made the playoff in, in the last three years. I don't know that they have a really strong contender for that again this year, but at the very least, the Pac-12 needs to be better on the national stage and against the teams that are their equivalent in other conferences. And they're going to have some opportunities early to establish themselves as I don't want to say the better conference, but at least earn back a little bit of the piss-poor reputation that, that that represents them right now. And so one of those games is UCLA going to Cincinnati. On I don't Thursday. think that's an easy game at all. Yeah. I don't think that's an easy game at all, especially the fact, like you said, a Thursday game, it's a night. I mean, the Thursday, whatever, it's their first game of the year, so it doesn't really matter when. But the fact it's it's a night game, it's on the road. I do think the Bruins are going to be better this year than they were a year ago and they were pretty bad a year ago, but yep. Cincinnati's a two and a half point favorite. And I feel like they, that might be a little low. At least Cincinnati was a lot better last year than UCLA was. And uh, I don't think that UCLA brought in uh, a whole lot to write home about. So I would lean Cincinnati there, but also I'm just, I would as a fan of the conference, like to see UCLA just go in there and take care of business. But I, I don't necessarily think that's going to be the case. Um, additionally, the Holy War, BYU and Utah. Yes. It's a game that I always, uh, that, that, that seems to Another generally, Thursday night um, tilt. Produce 
another Thursday night tilt, and it generally produces results, especially when it's at night, and it usually is. Mm-hmm. Um, Utah is a team that's getting a ton pub. They're picked to win the Pac-12, and uh, in some cases, I know that Phil Steele had them as a top 10 team in the country. I think he had them at eight. Um, they are a team that they are like, they resemble their head coach, Kyle Whittingham. They're and you wouldn't want to face them in a fight, but they don't have they don't have a quarterback, or at least they don't have much of a quarterback to write home about. They've they've got a young kid, and they've got uh, they basically got Tyler Huntley, who's been banged up his whole career, and they've got uh, Jordan Shelley, who's a younger, mobile guy, and he has not did not prove himself in his first year. So it seems like they have a lot of pieces, but they're getting so much hype. I think that the fact that BYU is hosting this game could be a very dangerous dog, and they're getting six points at home. So. Uh, again, I would like to see the Pac-12 assert their dominance, but I will side with the, t- the side on the other side of the aisle. Um, additionally, just from this is purely from a betting perspective. I have no interest in this game. Cal over UC Davis, I'm seeing, is just a 13-point spread, and that does not seem like nearly enough. I know Cal is defensive-minded, but they are going to need to get the mojo going early offensively for this team because they were terrible on offense last year. I still don't think they know what they're doing on, at quarterback this year. No. And they need reps. So they're not going to go out there and get a 10-point lead and try to sit on it. They're going to try to let their offense thrive because they have to if they're going to be competitive this year. If they don't beat UC Davis by two touchdowns, there's a big, big problem. Uh, I like. Um, I'm gonna. I'm gonna go this time. I will side with the Pac-12. I'm gonna take Oregon in the points against Auburn. I think that's a very even matchup. Obviously, as a Duck alum, I'm very excited for that matchup. Oregon boasts one of the best offensive lines, if not the best offensive line in the country. Conversely, Auburn, one of the best defensive lines in the country. Oregon has a seasoned uh, Heisman candidate type quarterback in Justin Herbert, whereas Auburn. Rolling out a true freshman, Bo Nix, a legacy quarterback for Auburn. And uh, there's a lot of talent on both sides of the ball. There's a ton of pressure on Gus Malzahn over his head if he doesn't um, probably win nine or ten games this year. And uh, it's, it's as big a game as there is on the schedule Saturday. I'm concerned about it as an Oregon fan. These games have not treated Oregon well in the past. I was at the game in Jerry's world against LSU. Uh, that to open the season that did not go the Ducks way. I was there when they faced Auburn in the national championship, and it did not go that way. But the Ducks are getting more than a field goal in this one, and I think they can win this game outright, mostly because of the freshman, true freshman quarterback under center for Auburn. And I think that Oregon's O-line will protect Herbert enough and get enough of the ground game going that they'll find a way to win this game. And uh, I, I think the fact they're getting points, uh, I like, even though the fact that spread opened at six and a half and is now down to three and a half in favor of Auburn. And then the last one is I'm going to fade Willie Taggart. And this may be something I do most of the season, but uh, <laughs> they are hosting Boise state and uh, Boise state is getting four and a half. Florida state didn't do anything to inspire me last year. I know that they have a brand new quarterback who they just brought in under center. They've had a lot of turmoil there since Taggart got on board. Uh, give me the team that's in the the spotlight for all the the right reasons in Boise and not the wrong reasons in Florida State. I'll take Boise plus four and a half. Interesting note on that game. That game's to be played in Jacksonville at the neutral site. Same, uh, no, not the same place as the Canes and Gators played. They played in Orlando. This is in where the Georgia 
Florida game is annually, the cocktail party. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, that game is under threat of this hurricane that's coming in off the Atlantic Ocean. Mm-hmm. So, unless, so unless our president figures out a way it? to throw some nuclear bombs at the storm and, and eradicate it, uh, that game could be in jeopardy. So uh, just an mm-hmm. interesting, interesting note on that game. Um, so those are all interesting games. And honestly, uh, aside from the Cal Davis game, those are all games that I looked pretty hard at as well. Um, so, you know, you mentioned the Auburn-Oregon game. That's the only game on the week one slate between teams that are both ranked in the preseason, which is a little disappointing. I feel like overall on paper, this is a little bit of a weak week one slate. I think we're accustomed to some slightly better neutral site matchups. You know, Alabama... I do think this. it gets better next week. It does, um, highlighted by LSU and Texas. But, you know, Alabama scheduled this game against Duke a long time ago when Duke was a little bit better. You know, Duke won eight games last year. Everyone's poo-pooing the game. It's not a great game. But then today we find out that Alabama's top two running backs are suspended for the first half. So that's going to sc- sort of shake things up a little bit, I think. Alabama's actually very thin at running back. They had... Their five-star true freshman uh, already, I think he broke his ankle in practice, like the first week of practice. He's out for the season. So if these two guys aren't in the game in the first half, they basically have, I think, one scholarship running back on the roster, and he's been dinged up for like two weeks and didn't even play in the scrimmage last week. So Alabama's going to be very thin at running back, uh, at least in the first half. They've obviously got a lot more talent than Duke. But that spread, I think, is up to 35 and a half. I love Duke in that with, with the points there, particularly now that the top two backs for Bama are, are not going to play in the first half. But outside of that, you know, there's not a ton of great games that I'm really excited for uh, just from a fan perspective. But I do think there's some good ones, namely uh, Georgia going on the road to Nashville to play Vanderbilt. Honestly, I was shocked that this spread is as high as is as high as it is. Uh, Georgia's minus twenty-one. Now, Georgia, Ryan, is sort of in this upper tier of of teams here in this sport, and I want to talk about that. Uh, you know, it seems like most everybody seems to think that it's Alabama, Clemson, and Georgia from a pure talent perspective, and then it's kind of everybody else. I mean, when you do playoff predictions, which we're going to do. Pretty much everybody thinks that at least two of those three teams are going to make the playoffs. A lot of people don't think that the SEC is going to get two, but they see Georgia and Alabama rematching again in Atlanta in the SEC championship game. And I am kind of agree with that, you know, on paper, but there's just so many unknowns that we don't know. I mean, I'm not going to go down the list, but I think clearly Georgia, Alabama, Clemson are the three best teams as we sit here hitting it, heading into week one from a talent and experience standpoint. But I think that Georgia going on the road at Vandy, get, giving 21 or 22 is too many. <coughs> Obviously, if you get it up to 21 and a half or 22, that's a big difference. But give me Vandy. Vandy's actually supposed to have three really good receivers. Uh, Derek Mason's entering his third season. They have a decent program. I mean, they're not a terrible program right now by any stretch. So give me the doors and the points. I agree with you with Cincinnati. I would lay the two and a half on Thursday with Chip Kelly and the Bruins coming to town. And then the other teams I like, I just like a bunch of road dogs. Um, I'm sorry. 
I like a bunch of home dogs. Dogs that are getting points at home. I yep. like South Florida catching 13 against the visiting Badgers. Mm-hmm. I like Nevada catching 10.5 in Reno at altitude against the visiting Purdue Boilermakers. I like Louisiana, Louisiana Lafayette. The Ragin' Cajuns getting 20.5 at home against Mississippi State. I mentioned Vandy. And then the other one that I like, and this is not a, a home dog, but Fresno State catching 13.5 in the Coliseum on Saturday night against the Trojans. I think the Trojans are a really fascinating team. It seems like they still have a ton of talent. They just named a starting quarterback. I don't understand why Clay Helton is still there. It seems like their entire fan base wanted him fired after last season, uh, but they kept him around anyway. Um, And now there's all kinds of rumors that Urban Meyer is going to be their head coach next season which wouldn't surprise me at all. I think that would actually be a really good fit for both parties. Um, so it's going to be an interesting thing to watch there because that comp, that that division, the Pac-12 South, you alluded to it, Utah's the favorite, but it's really pretty wide open. And I don't think any of the teams are really all that great. So uh, give me Fresno State. Fresno State's supposed to have a pretty good team. You know they're going to be up for it. I like it, that. Uh, with Jeff Tedford in his second year at the helm there. He really kind of turned him around in just one season. He's a hell of a coach. So g- give me Fresno State, uh, 13 and a half. Really, I mean, you talk about Tedford, USC would be good to just go out and hire him and not deal with the headache of, of Urban Meyer. I think Jeff Tedford has proven himself to be a pretty darn good head coach uh, on the West Coast. So, you know, I, I didn't think he, he did a great job with Cal towards the end. But as it turns out, he was sort of at odds with their administration not wanting to let some questionable guys in academically. And that's really what led to them falling on hard times. And they haven't been anywhere near as good since he left Berkeley. So I like Tedford now. I think he's a he's a really good offensive coach. And it seems like he's got the Bulldogs heading the right direction there out in uh, sort of rural California. So those are the teams that I like from a betting perspective. Let's talk about some teams you like just in terms of getting to the playoff, and winning a national championship. Who, who do you like there? Yeah, maybe in, in terms of, <clears throat> I was even thinking as a wild card this week, your college football playoff predictions as far as your, your top four teams. And I'm happy to start. And yeah, that, the, that's, the thing that's is, good. I, I, w- I wish that I had, I, I really had a deep belief that it was going to be someone other than the Blue Bloods who are predicted, but I think that Clemson is sailing right in there as the number one seed, no problem, unless something happens to Trevor Lawrence. And um, obviously that that could be the case with any team, but barring uh, something catastrophic there, I don't see how Clemson with that schedule doesn't just coast in there. I think Alabama's getting in too. I don't think it'll be nearly as easy as, as it is for Clemson. I think they'll be challenged. They might even take a loss, but I think Alabama makes it too. Um, I think that Florida will again uh, get back in there. I think they're that they have, like you said, talent-wise, it's those three teams and everybody else, and those coaches, those Wait, three so coaches. Who, did have you just proven... say Florida? Did I did I hear that right? No, no, I said did I I said Georgia. If I oh, you said, said if, I, if I, I misspoke, it's Florida. Said I did Florida. If you said Georgia, I misheard. If I did, I, I meant apologize. Georgia. No, okay, if so I if I said Florida with I with meant the Georgia. three right, the three top dogs, the same as everybody. Gotcha. Okay. And then I'm I'm tempted to go with Oklahoma 
I love what Lincoln Riley's been able to do back to back years with different yeah how could quarterbacks. I think making making a run with with a third quarterback in a third year is an exceptionally tall order. Uh, it was a, t- a tall order last year when he did it with Kyler Murray and he worked magic. And I still think they're going to be wildly successful. Um, but for the sake of of not essentially going chalk here, I'm not going to take Oklahoma. I don't even know that I like Texas that much. Um, in fact, I don't like Texas that much. I don't think they're back yet. I don't think Sam Ellinger is that guy. I think that's a conference that kind of cannibalizes itself the way we've seen the Pac-12 do previously. But so I, I texted you this uh, over the weekend, and yeah. uh, I'm not sure I even really feel great about it. But my shot in the dark or my kind of go out on a limb pick is I'm going to take the Washington Huskies. Okay. They have by far the easiest schedule. They fit, they play all their toughest opponents uh, at home. When I say the easiest schedule. The easiest schedule of anyone in the Pac-12. They play all their toughest opponents at home. They get Oregon at home. Uh, they dodge a couple tough teams from the Pac-12 South. And I just I think the way things set up, and they're not really, in my opinion, being a truly dominant team in that conference, I think it's, it is within the realm of possibility that they could take one or zero losses and win the, and, and win the Pac-12. And if they do, throw one, one loss Pac-12 champion and their loss is a tough one, uh, I, see, I could see them maybe getting in. So I, I know that the Pac-12 as a conference has not been buoyed up by their strength of schedule, by their ability to beat other conferences. Washington lost a lot, but Jacob Eason is the uh, Georgia transfer who – Lost the job to Jake Fromm, and as I, right. I heard someone point out, just because you transferred doesn't mean you're a bad quarterback if you lost your job to Jake Fromm. I mean, he is um, a guy that was a five-star recruit himself. Chris Peterson has found a way to win big games when he's needed to, and despite the fact they're reloading on defense, they have a lot of talent coming in, and they I like that they're just kind of under the radar. I don't think they're going to see a ton of challenges, so that'll be kind of my my reach of a college football playoff team. I, I'm more inclined gut-wise to go Oklahoma, but uh, to avoid going shock, I will take Clemson, Alabama, Georgia, and Washington. With who winning? Oh, well, I will take uh, Clemson beating Washington, and I'll take, let's see, I will take... I'll take Georgia beating Alabama, and I'll take Clemson over Georgia in the championship game. Okay. Yeah, I'm looking at Washington's scheduling, and you're right on the money. They have a pretty easy schedule. Their out-of-conference is Eastern Washington, Hawaii, and at BYU. That's about as easy as it gets. Uh, And they have all of their tough games at home. Their toughest road game is probably at Stanford. Uh, on Saturday, October mm-hmm. the 5th. Agreed. That's the only preseason ranked team they play on the road. Um, they get Oregon, Utah, and SC all at home. So, And Washington State all at home. So, uh, mm-hmm. yeah, pretty easy schedule for the Huskies. Um, for me, you know, I look at it like this. I-, I agree with you on Clemson. I mean, the ACC was at an all-time low last year. And it looks like they might be even worse this year. Uh, My Syracuse Orange won 10 games last year for the first time in two decades. And, you know, that that sort of landed them as a preseason ranked team coming in here at 22. I'm here to tell you, Ryan, I think the Cuse is the most overrated team in the country as we head into this season. This flew under the radar a little bit. But when, you know, when Vegas opened 
earlier in the summer with their season win totals, they had the Qs at five and a half, which is a, seemed like a crazy low number. But Vegas is usually pretty right on with those numbers. And of course, the public bet it up immediately. I think it's at seven or seven and a half, which was one of the biggest movers of all the college football teams. You know, you don't see a lot, you know, game, game and a half movement on these season win totals very much. I think that Syracuse is going to struggle this year. And they, you know, by preseason standards, are the second best team in Clemson's conference. So I just don't see who's going to challenge Clemson at all in the ACC. They do play Texas A&M out of conference, but that's at home, uh, and they should probably win that game. So, I, I, you know, to me, you almost pencil Clemson into this playoff, really. Um, and then... The other four power conferences, I think, are really, really competitive. I think the Big Ten, the Pac-12, and the Big 12 are as good and as deep as I can ever remember them being. Not, maybe not so much the Big Ten, just because uh, you've got a lot of uncertainty now with Ryan Day at Ohio State in his first uh, season as a head coach, and Michigan State and Penn State, and even Wisconsin aren't quite as strong. You know, I remember exactly a year ago, us talking about, I think that there were five Big Ten teams ranked in the top 15 going into into last mm-hmm. season, and we thought that that was, you know, impossible that they would all live up, and we were right on that. But, you know, it's a good conference. It's probably not as good as last year or some years past, but I think the Big 12 and Pac-12 are really, really competitive. And I think even a team like Oklahoma is going to have a really tough time. And, you know, I I just think that Jalen Hurts coming in there is not the same thrower that Kyler Murray and Baker Mayfield are. I mean, uh, Hurts was better throwing the football last year than he was his previous two years when mm-hmm. he got to play. But I just think that uh, that Oklahoma offense is going to take a little bit of a step back with Hurts. I mean, you're coming off two years, as you mentioned, with the Heisman Trophy winning quarterback. And if they can't get their defense any better, then they're they're not going to be a playoff team. And I just don't know who out of the Big 12 is going to be able to to only lose one game. You know, in the six years of this playoff, we haven't seen a two-loss team get in yet. So is this the year that it happens? Maybe, but I think that that's hard to sort of predict. So when I look at predicting the playoff, you know, I haven't talked about the SEC. The SEC has five really good teams, and then a bunch of teams in the middle. I think you look at Alabama, Georgia, LSU, and then there's kind of a drop-off to Florida, although Florida was preseason number eight, uh, Florida and Auburn. I think those are the top five. Uh, Kentucky should be pretty good again. But then after that, there's probably even a little bit more of a drop-off. So I think that you know Mississippi State and Ole Miss aren't what they've been in recent years. Uh, Tennessee still, I don't think, is markedly improved. The Gamecocks aren't really that good. Uh, So I think, you know, the bottom of the SEC is probably a little worse than it has been uh, over the past decade or so. So that's sort of my handicap. So I guess, you know, to to make a prediction here, I'm going to be with you. I think Alabama, Georgia, and Clemson all get in. I mean, I don't know how it's going to work out with Alabama and Georgia getting in. Maybe they both go into the SEC championship undefeated, and it's almost like a a done deal going in that they're both going to get in. 
I'm not really sure. I don't think they're both going to go undefeated. I think maybe one of them goes undefeated into that SEC championship game, and one has one loss. But I think, however it pans out, they both end up figuring out a way to get into the playoff. And then my fourth team, I'm going to go with Michigan. Uh, you know, with Urban Meyer out of the way for Jim Harbaugh in Michigan, Shea Patterson's Ooh. second season in the system. They've got this new offensive coordinator that everybody's really high on that they got out after one year at Alabama, Josh Gaddis. He's never been an offensive coordinator before, but everybody wants to treat him like, you know, he's the second coming of Bill Walsh. I'm going to take a wait-and-see approach. But I think Michigan clearly is the most experienced and sort of the most solid team in that conference. The, the one game they have out of conference is Notre Dame, which will be tough, but it's in the big house. So I'm just going to go with Michigan as my fourth team. As far as uh, who's going to win, give me Alabama against Georgia. I think Alabama will knock off Clemson in the semifinal and avenge last year's championship game loss. And then I think they'll play Georgia again. Uh, and maybe they lose to Georgia in the SEC championship and avenge that loss in the championship in New Orleans, where it is this year. So I've got the Crimson Tide over the Bulldogs uh, for the championship. I think that Alabama uh, is a really talented team. They lost a bunch on defense. They've got almost their entire offense back. And, Ryan, when you really look at this Saban era, and you're going to hear me saying this throughout the year, I think that this is his last chance to win a national championship. They're going to lose a ton. Um, off of this year's team almost the entire offense is either a senior or is going to leave after their junior year um, it's going to be really hard to replace Tua Tagovailoa with anybody I just think that he is almost like a, a once in a generation college quarterback <clears throat> and I really feel yep. like you know obviously they're going to continue to recruit but I feel like you know Saban's not getting any younger I feel like this is his last this is his last legitimate chance to win a national championship before he rides off into the sunset. So that's just another little prediction for the people out there. But that that's my final four. Alabama, Georgia, Clemson, Michigan, Bama over the dogs in New Orleans to raise the big trophy. All right. And we get started. Um, okay. I've got a quick wild card before we go, if I can. Yeah, let's do it. Yeah. Okay, and, and I'm going to go off the Andrew Luck thing. You know, I, 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 uh, a big sentiment on that was people were so surprised and so shocked. You know, I'm not sure I would say I was shocked, but it got me to thinking, what are some things, you know, it can be sports stories or otherwise, what over the last, you know, however long, five, ten years, has legitimately surprised you? You know, when I say that, what has surprised mm. you? Uh, of late. That's my wild card. Hmm. Wow. Um, well, certainly, and not to go down a, a dark path, but the, the 9-11 episode was just, was, was, was really shocking. Yes, it was. uh, That kind of, the visual of, of that with, I mean, I remember, my my parents uh, woke. We, I mean, being on the West Coast, it happened pretty early where where we were, and um, so my parents were up, but I wasn't yet, and they woke me up early to make sure that like I knew what was going on before yeah. I went to school and didn't just show up all oblivious. And that was uh, that was wild. I'm trying to think from a sports perspective, uh, what what some of those um, moments might be that were truly shocking. I mean, it's it, I know it hurts. 
for you, but I remember um, getting off of a plane and turning my phone on to the kick six between Auburn and Alabama. And I know that before there had been a field goal returned for a touchdown, like it's not like we hadn't seen that, but we hadn't seen it as a walk-off winner and maybe something that we never expected to see um, in the history of college football, a walk-off in in a rivalry game between two top teams, no less. It was, I mean, I was truly and utterly stunned by that moment. Um, As was I, man, the, uh, I I wasn't, you might've been old enough for it to be resonate, but the OJ Bronco chase. Yes was hard to fathom. It was like, well, this, there are like helicopters following this pro running back who may or may not have killed these people. Is a, uh, It seemed like it was out of a bad movie and it was real life. That, that's, that's certainly another one. Um, what, what are some of yours? I may, I may be able to ponder a couple more. Yeah, you know, all of those for me, the, the one that sticks out in my mind for whatever reason is the Tiger Woods incident with his wife on Thanksgiving night. That really mm. came out of nowhere for me. And then the, in the wake of that, you know, you had all these women sort of come forward and talk about how they had had affairs with Tiger and sort of, you know, up to that point, Tiger was about as pristine, had about as pristine an image as anybody would mm-hmm. hope to have. I, that for me, you know, that left me th- saying, after this, no sports story is going to surprise me. Uh, and, I, and I really think that that sort of shifted almost like my expectation to where it's like, wow, if, if this could happen to Tiger, you know, I, anything yeah. could happen to anybody. And so I think that was sort of a big moment for me on the surprise factor. You know, I the OJ thing was a big one for me too, as was 9-11. Um, you know, I think that finding out uh, that that Trump had beaten Hillary Clinton in the election was a pretty big surprise mm. for me uh, and a lot of and, and pretty much all the other Americans just because of the polls that you saw in the days leading up to the election. Mm-hmm. It basically didn't seem like like Trump had much, if any, chance at all. And then you know you go to bed that night and he's the president. So that that was quite surprising, quite shocking, and and still is to be to be honest. But. Um, some other, some sports ones, you know, I remember finding out, you know, the, uh, the news that Magic Johnson had HIV. I was pretty young. I think that yeah, was, I was too, 90- I was too young to remember that. I think I was in 91, I want to say. So I was 13. So I was old enough to kind of, kind of understand what was going on. Um, you know, I think that the, uh, you know, just in terms of games, uh, the big one that's always sticks out for me uh, Appalachian State beating Michigan. I remember watching yeah, that. Yeah. That was, you know, this Labor Day, that first weekend, I think. Um, and I was in a all-Michigan bar in San Diego. And that was really something. Must to have be been fun. So fun. <laughs> so fun. Uh, that That's one that I'll always remember. And then... Uh, I know that he was already kind of billed as a, a psycho that time, uh, by this point because he'd already done time in prison, but uh, the Mike Tyson-Vander uh, Holyfield ear bite scene I was, watching was, was that still live. pretty shocking. 
Yeah. Even though it was Mike Tyson, to to see someone do that in person was, or not in person, but like in earnest was was wild. Yeah, I remember watching that Mm -hmm. with my dad and a a few buddies had come over when we were in high school. That was pretty shocking. Um, What else? I mean, you know, there's been some big upsets, but I think the, the App State Michigan one is the one that stands out for me the most um and you know the other one that and i think you'll agree uh lebron and Kyrie and the Cavs coming back from a 3-1 deficit in the finals to to beat the warriors like that and to win that game seven in oracle that was pretty shocking you know i that that was that, that was a shock. I think it, when it was at, when it was at three when it was at three one it was shocking. When it was at three three, I don't think it was as shocking. Um, at least it, it felt like something wasn't right at that point in time. So I, I think with the nature of the comeback, you're slowly able to brace yourself a little bit. I mean, similar to I would you, I, I think you could maybe say that the Red Sox three nothing come back yes. against the Yankees to then go on and break the curse. Yeah. But at the same time, with each win, you started to believe a little bit more. And overall, if you if you told the person that at 3 nothing, it was going to happen, that would be shocking if it all happened at once. But you kind of have the, the, the slow build, I think, hurts that just, just a tad. No, I agree. But yeah, but just the whole thing, like watching each, every moment of, mm-hmm. of every game, it was, was pretty shocking. To see that unfold, but I think we've agreed. well, and actually, you know what else? Recently, uh, and and this one we we didn't even touch on our first ever sixteen over a one UMBC, yeah. and it, and the the thing about it was that they just did it in really pedestrian fashion. They kind of just went out and beat them. It was like ho hum by like nineteen points, and there wasn't anybody on the the retrievers squad that like really had a massive night. There weren't any massive runs. They were kind of just better. And it was like, it, it, it was when we've seen upsets of that magnitude, it's like the team goes up early and the, the, the better teams trying to make a comeback or like it, none of that ever happened. It was just like the way it was supposed to go down. And it was shocking. Yeah. That one was pretty stunning. A little less so for me having grown up kind of around Virginia basketball, you know, that up until <laughs> it know, never happened before. Yeah, but it wasn't like it was Duke or Carolina or Kentucky. It was Virginia. I know, and and that made it less shocking for me. But it was it, also it, it really UNBC. Did. It was. It was. I mean, it was shocking, but I wouldn't put it in the same category for me as as an App State, Michigan, or even like uh, you know Mercer or Lehigh beating Duke in the first round of the NCAA tournament. Those, that was, even though Duke, you know, wasn't a one seed, I think they were a two both those years. Those were both more shocking to me than Virginia losing as a one seed just because of the history of Virginia's basketball program up until last year where they completely reversed everything and ended up cutting down the nets. Yeah, I think you and I may have watched that Duke-Mercer game together. And then as far we as did, the shocking at, at in the at Kizar Pub, yeah. yeah. But the in, in the shocking fashion, you mentioned that Michigan-App State game. May, maybe the most shocking outcome to me the entire time I was at Oregon was Oregon played Michigan the week after Michigan had played Appalachian State. 
And I remember going to Oregon's game that Saturday that Appalachian State beat Michigan and thought, we are so screwed because now that that team lost to Appalachian State, they are going to kick the crap out of us. And I, I honestly thought it was the worst thing. I should have seen it as a positive sign that this Michigan team is like, you know, fallible or whatever. But the way that Oregon and Dennis Dixon just walked into Ann Arbor and won 39 to 7 was stunning as an Oregon fan to go into a Blue Bloods place and kick the crap out of them like that. Yeah, I bet that felt pretty darn good. It did. Yeah. Big Statue of Liberty plays. Yeah. Fantastic. Well, listen, uh, I wish you luck this Saturday against Auburn. That's a big game for you guys and for the Pac-12 it is. in general. I don't know what to make of that game. I really, you know, nobody knows what to expect from Auburn's offense with this true freshman quarterback. I think that it's mm-hmm. going to be really, uh, you know, we haven't talked about this game, so I wanted to talk about it a little bit. I think it's going to be really fascinating to see if Auburn can, you know, just match Auburn's, uh, if Oregon can match Auburn's physicality. You touched on Oregon having maybe the best O-line in the country. You know, Mario Cristobal is a, you know, played at Miami, has coached in the SEC, coached at Alabama. He's really building that program up in, in toughness, building it in the trenches, stressing defense and tackling. So it's going to be fun to watch and see if the Pac-12 school can just go toe-to-toe with an SEC physicality. And I don't think that Auburn's a great team, but they're a top five or six SEC team, and it's going to be a fun matchup to watch. So I I wish you luck in that matchup in Jerry World. I'm I'm looking forward to watching that game. Thank you. Uh, I think we'll need it. Uh, It's going to be a fight. I think it will be close, but uh, it would be a big one for my Ducks. It is. It's a big. It's a big game. It's it's the biggest game of the weekend. So, uh, for that reason alone, it's going to be well worth watching. So, good luck to the Ducks. Um, hope everybody out there enjoys Week One of college football. We'll be back next week to recap and look ahead to Week Two and NFL Week One. So, uh, as we always say at the end of our show, good night, everybody. Sleep tight. Good night, y'all.